And that's why I think the pandemic helped us um, sort of adjust and find that there were lots of ideas coming from different places in the organization because we were just scrambling. But that scrambling, you know, the leaders got got people through it and that's why I sort of say look to the to look to the learnings that you that the, that can come from the past two and a half you know two and a half years because you were still leading you were still you know you got your business through it you rallied but you weren't it wasn't being doing do, you weren't doing it in the same way you were much more flexible you were adapting to what was going on you were like okay who has an idea how can we deploy those skills what else do we need to do what can we learn how can we look at the supply chain differently so i think that kind of that sort of expanded mindset that sort of ex- expanded way of leading you know really sort of morphing how leadership can be thought of and and adapted ready to learn why cash flow and compassion are not mutually exclusive each week brand strategist speaker and author maria ross will introduce you to the trailblazing brands and leaders who embrace empathetic tactics to reap huge rewards You'll learn about winning teams, brand wins and fails, unforgettable customer experience, and bold leadership decisions fueled by compassion. You'll get the latest trends and research, discover practical ways to infuse more empathy into your work and life, and hear from innovative market leaders who've smashed outdated models and redefined success. Welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast, the show that proves empathy isn't just good for society, it's great for business. The future of work is not in the future. It's already here. So let's start calling it the new era of business and work. But especially coming out of the pandemic, so many leaders struggle with how to adapt to changing work requirements, current business challenges, and different employee needs, motivations, and demands. Sophie Wade is a work futurist, international keynote speaker, authority on future of work issues, and author of Empathy Works, the key to competitive advantage in the new era of work. She's the host of the widely popular Transforming Work podcast, and over 450,000 learners have taken her four LinkedIn courses, which cover empathy, future of work skills, and Gen Z. Sophie is the founder and workforce innovation specialist at Flexel Network, a future of work consultancy. Sophie's executive advisory work and transformative workshops help companies adapt and update their work environments and attract, engage, and retain their multi-generational and distributed talent. She helps corporations maximize the benefits and minimize the disruption in their transition to talent-focused, digitalized work environments. Today, we talk about how millennial and Gen Z habits are shaping new social contracts at work, why we understand how hard it is for seasoned executives to adapt to this new reality, and what it takes to create a more human-centric environment. We dig into the challenges of generational differences at work, where they stem from, and how empathy is the way to bridge those distances to increase engagement, understanding, and performance. We also chat about how work has changed from linear and routine to more networked and complex and why the leadership skills that got you where you are might need a tune-up in today's reality. Sophie will share a few practical ways that you can improve your leadership and culture, so you don't want to miss this one. Stay tuned. Hello, Sophie, and welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast to talk about the future of work and how to create a thriving workplace culture. That is a popular topic here on our podcast. 
Wonderful to be here, Mary. Maria. Thank you so much for having me. And before we get started, I just want to hear a little bit about your story and what brought you, brought you to this work of, you know, a future of work consultancy. Just briefly tell us how you got here. Well, um, I have to go way back, unfortunately. Um, I did science at the end of high school, didn't want to do any more science in college, so I studied Chinese. And then Chinese got me actually going to move to Hong Kong. And after Hong Kong, I lived I lived in France, I lived in Germany, I've lived in Italy for a bit, and then the States. So I've lived in lots of different, lived and worked in many different countries. And as a result, I really, in order to be successful, I really had to lean in. I had to try and assimilate, try and get inside people's heads, try and understand what was going on. And that really, that is about empathizing. And so without even realizing it, you yes. know, I sort of, as I was writing this book and, and sort of looking back, I was like, oh yeah, that really makes tons of sense. So it really was being in lots of different other environments, cultures that I had to really try and adjust. And so that I also didn't have any preconceptions about what work should be like, because living in Germany, it's very different work culture. Nobody works at the weekends, apart from tech folks. And I was working in a very early tech startup there. So we did have people working over the weekend, but mostly, you know, people don't. And so when I came to the States and, you know, looking at all of this and how much workplace was changing, I didn't have any kind of like, well, work is always like this because it isn't. <laughs> and so that really, I get, I think really gave me much more, uh, much, it's a very open mind to what it was like and what mm -hmm. it could be like, because I know that it's different everywhere. And therefore that sort of gave me a much easier foundation for looking at a much more empathetic sort of way of, of looking at kind of like what could be. Absolutely. Well, and I think, I think so many of us empathy activists, have come to this from this realization later in our careers where we realize actually what we'd been doing to be successful all along was actually empathy. And mm. you know, for me, I mean, I can speak for me is it's that get that curiosity that trying to get to know other people that were in different functions or in different areas of the business and trying to create good relationships with them. And then people wondering, well, how did you get that person to do that project? We can never get him to do anything, you know? And it's like, well, I just, got to know him, you know? <laughs> so it was, it wasn't until I did a strengths finder that I came to realize, oh, that's actually called empathy. Cause I would have never <laughs> described myself well, as an empathetic I person. Had, would you? I had, well, the thing is, yes, I got into the future work and I didn't, it wasn't kind of like, yes, empathy is the thing, but I had three sort of pillars that clients kept asking to me speak about and, and work on with them. One was the changing styles of leadership, which I called leading from within, or, you know, it was more oversight, more coaching, those type of things. The second was um, intergenerational challenges or communications or misinterpretations. Mm. And the third was uh, the decentralized workforce and people working sort of remotely, which is, you know, telecommuting, which has been going on for years and years. Absolutely. And the key one really was about I, so many people, it wasn't even Gen Z, it was lamentations loud and clear about millennials, those darn millennials, blah, blah, blah. And so many people complaining that I, I was like, okay, fine. I sat down and I looked at all the, tons and tons of research and I was like, hang a second. They're very, very similar to, you know, anybody else at that age. However, where we are, where careers are, how technology has changed things for them, 
is very different and how much technology that they've grown up with all the rest of it. So it was really putting myself in their shoes. And I, then I was like, well, okay, that's, that's empathy. Okay. So let me, let me just try and communicate that if you're going to try and understand these people and stop complaining about them or complaining about them differently <laughs> right. with like just much more understanding, right. then just put yourself in your shoes first. And so empathy became the solution mm. um, or, or the way of explaining it. And then I realized, of course, that for remote working and for changing styles of leadership, when it's much less about, it's much less about ego and much more about empathy, mm-hmm. which is a chapter in my first book, that that's where I was like, oh, empathy is the solution. Mm-hmm. And then after that, and then for, for a while, it was kind of like the secret source that I never talked about, but it, in the in like in a presentation, it would finally come out to the end. Right, <laughs> right. Later on, it became some clients are comfortable for me to lead with it and other times it is it sort of still comes out as a as a solution just depending on the audience I love that and you know I've had on on the show before a woman named Lisa Stromberg who did an episode a while back on on 21st century leadership mm. and her organization is a culture consultancy she also teaches a, a leadership class at Stanford and I'll put a link to that in the show notes mm-hmm. but she they have they have a model at her company where empathy is one of the pillars of being a 21st century successful leader and you know oh, we, yeah. weren't, we weren't talking about those kinds of things I'm Gen X you know I we didn't talk Me about too. those kind of things back then and oh no and even <laughs> just in in the course of the the work that I'm doing you know I started writing my book in 2017 2016 and it was like okay well I can't say empathic because people are going to think that's too woo woo for the business world. I even chose like empathetic, even though I could have mm. used empathic or, you know, so the, the way we've had to sort of make it palatable for people to embrace that this is not weakness. This is not about acquiescing to every crazy demand, which I talk a lot about in terms of Gen Z and millennials, <laughs> but um, really getting people to like pull up a chair and listen. And it sounds like You've done that with your clients too. Like whatever entry point you need to get in there, eventually well, they're going to hear about really, empathy. Yeah, right. And that really <laughs> is empathy, really, because right. you know if I'm going to try and communicate to somebody, I need to understand where they're coming from. And totally. if the, I recognize that the empathy word is so loaded mm-hmm. and just it's not going to be helpful, there's no point in saying it because it's going to become a barrier rather than a solution. So I'll say human-centric or just, you know, let's talk about a human understanding and, you know, and those being the words because, you know, even dear friends of mine said, oh, I'm so glad you've written a book about being kind and nice in the office. And I'm like, I don't think I actually, I think I talk about that being once as being not what it's about. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, I think those myths of empathy are so powerful of being able to bust those mm. for people. And I'm sure when you do your presentations as well, you kind of see a collective sigh of relief from especially some senior leaders about explaining to them what empathy actually is. Mm, so yeah. um, I would love to hear more about, you know, given that you run a future of work consultancy, future of work is a buzzword. It's a trending hashtag right now, but what are the actual challenges you're hearing from leaders around dealing with the future of work? Is it, do, is it as basic as I don't understand what that means to, <laughs> you know, how do I better prepare? What are you hearing from clients? Well, the future of work is here. It arrived in 2020. It's kind of and the present of work. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I, I <laughs> typically am talking about the new era of business and work because mm-hmm. it feels weird to be talking about the future when it's here. Um, the The reality, though, is that most people are not in the future of work, whereas the environment is the future of work. And that's where so much of the strain is. 
because it 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 was already pretty uncomfortable prior to the pandemic. The pandemic accelerated the arrival of future work because it is so much so much driven by technology and the technology implementations that we have been, you know, doing for the last 20, 30 years, but then really accelerated. So there was this sort of, you know, um, non-incremental leap that we haven't really been able to to accommodate very easily. So it is it is very challenging. And I, I think the the pain and the struggle that everybody is dealing with now, which is, you know, in addition to all the economic challenges from where we are from the pandemic, from just supply chain disruptions to all those things, a lot of, you know, what I do say is that mo- probably close to 90%, 80-90% of the characteristics that we were dealing with during the pandemic were actually the future of work. This you know, non-linear, pivoting, changing, lots of different changing behaviors, new software being implemented, changing customer behaviors, which then meant you had to change your behavior. Then how are you going to, you know, the cycles, the feedback loops, all of this. I mean, there's a lot that's changing and has been changing the nature of work being not so linear, much more networked, um, non-routine. Non-routine work has been growing, you know, very strongly in the last 30 years. And the Harvard Business uh, Review, their t- last, the last issue, the twenty November December twenty twenty one issue, said the project economy has arrived, you know, and that has been building for for I don't know twenty years or so, it, which actually explained that in Germany between two thousand and nine two thousand nineteen, the percentage of GDP that was a sort of attributable to projects became got to forty one percent in twenty nineteen. What that means, it's non routine work, and it's often, well, mostly working together closely in teams. And that's where Q empathy is when we're working very closely together in unpredictable conditions at a faster pace because we're so interconnected by the technology. That's when we need to be able to understand each other better. And that's sort of how I approach it. But looking at how much change there has been, and this is what I saw not obviously not the pandemic, but the, in 2014, when I saw what this future of work thing was called, because I was in workplace flexibility and had been since 2011, and then this this umbrella term, which encompassed so much more, all driven by by technology, or mostly, I mean, there've been societal changes as well. Mm-hmm. That was when I I sort of was like, whoa, that's going to be tough. Yeah, and people have known people. Some people have have been there. They've got there. They're you know have put a lot more flexibility into the system and use and using that technology and thinking about things in a very different way. Mm-hmm. But but we have so many legacy ways of thinking, structure, frameworks that it's very hard. And what the pandemic was able to do was like shake things up a lot mm-hmm. um, and be thinking differently and be pivoting more and be, you know, assigning roles in different ways and mm-hmm. and sort of helping us catalog and record how we worked and the workflow and sort of changing that a bit. But there has been this tendency, obviously, you know, as we emerged from the pandemic to try and go back to what felt safe and comfortable and right. slower, but but that's not where we are. Exactly. Exactly. And more of that emphasis on humanity at work. I mean, I think that's yeah. really... That's really the the biggest acceleration I've seen is the fact that we are we have now because we were in each other's homes with Zoom, right? We were yeah. we saw the yeah. kids and the pets and the juggling the this and the that. We were able to develop empathy by seeing our colleagues and even our teams as human beings, mm-hmm. as whole human beings. Exactly. And I think there's there's a level of patience and understanding. 
I mean, not that we're, we're still not in a hustle culture, but there's, there's a level, especially in corporate that I've seen of patience and understanding that I did not see a few years ago. Would you, would you say that's true? So I would have said yes, but this new research, which shows that we are less, the title of the article that I read was uh, about the research was like, is the pandemic has turned us into jerks. Well, what he was basically saying is that out at the very beginning of the pandemic, apparently, and I read this in great detail because I was not, not happy about this. You were horrified. Yeah. I was like, no, it can't be true. It can't be true. It must be different. I'm so, we're all it's empathy. It's like that. I think, and I, and it, what, what was the point of the article? Just, just that briefly, we that- are, we have come out of this less effectively, less empathetic towards each other. Now, I, I think I haven't, I do want to go and dig into the actual layers of the data because yeah. I think there are so many other elements to this. There's political divisiveness, there's the leaders that we have, you know, around the world that are not helping and the economic situations, which are not helping. So I don't, I don't know whether all of that really sits, but but a lot of the, the 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 data that they were gathering about how people feel about each other, how much more supportive they are now that it does it was better with with younger generations mm-hmm. um, in terms of support to each other, um, but it it hasn't come out to be now that we're out of this mm-hmm. that we're actually in a better place and. I do, you know, I mean, we do see this generally now sort of we have emerged that there is this, there sort of seems to be a battle in the workplace about this sort of pull, which often unfortunately seems to be between generations. Um, you know, we need to be working, go back to be working like this or no, we should be working more, you know, flexibly operationally. And, and, and that does tend to be coming from the younger generations, even though it's actually, I see it, but mean much more of a, a need in this new type of work environment, but it's, 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 it's causing a lot of strain. So let's talk a little bit about the generations. Cause that's always a hot button. And, you know, a lot of the research I did for my book was about you know, the, the attitudes of millennials and Gen Z and how they are changing the conversation of what work means, workplace culture, uh, you know, quite frankly, I'm I'm cheering them on because they're brave enough to ask for the things that we were too scared to ask for, like respect at work and flexibility <laughs> and the, you know, ability to bring my real self to work. And then, you know, and in doing so to provide immense innovation and value and loyalty as a result. So what are you seeing in your work around the the generational conflict? So I I look at this as being something which is natural to to any of us. We have more after the Second World War. There's been all this research into psychology, understanding how our brains work. You know, we don't want to let that kind of stuff happen again. And so that information has been coming through. It wasn't there. We're both Gen Xs. It wasn't there when we were growing up, and we weren't. I mean, I grew up in England and you know, therapy still isn't, you know, uh, as acceptable <laughs> as it is here in the US, which I applaud here. And so the information, the understanding that we have now, which as parents, boomers and exes as parents are bringing up our children in a different way. You know, I mean, I do did find out that in the 1950s, not but it was still in the 1960s, that the British, whatever the British Pediatric Association is called, the 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 way that they they explained it, 
if you hug at your children, you tell them you love them, it will make them weak. Now, that wow. doesn't help anybody right no. <laughs> so so it's 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 not that we're different it's that we have as parents learned, i believe yeah. we have learned we, we're we're bringing up these kids the, they're the ones we're still the people who are in the workforce who are complaining about those kids but we're the ones who raise them completely and so the information the understanding and then uh, what i see happen is that of course they pick up the tools that we've taught them to advocate we've taught them to be logical we've taught them to look at the data and we've taught them to, to to do what makes sense. And then they come into the workforce and we say, don't use those tools. Don't use, you know, those efficiency things. Don't be, you know, trying to use the, you know, whatever yeah. product management. Don't question don't everything, be- which you tell don't, them all and don't the whole speak time up. growing you know, up. Yeah. So, so I, I, there's, this, <laughs> there's this real challenge of these monsters we've created, you know, what are we going to do with them? So I think we all need to, it's, it's not that they're any different. We are the ones, we were the ones who created this technology that is sophisticated and advanced and mobile and can be used in so many different amazing ways. And, and, and we actually have also trained the people who are going to be using them. And then we complain about what it does. Well, and also there, we can't underestimate this idea of being digitally native versus mm-hmm. adopting technology. I mean, yes, very Gen, much. again, Gen X, we knew life before a cell phone. We knew life before an iPod. We knew life before email and all of those things. And so even though we've learned to use those in our everyday life, it's still different for us than it oh, is yeah. for someone who grew up as a digital native. And mm-hmm. that that is sort of sideswiped by so many seasoned executives that, you know, well, I, I use that technology too. And I'm, I'm, oh, on, I'm on social media side, too. How do you use sideswipers? Yeah. <laughs> sideswipe, yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, but it, it's yeah. very meaningful because it's a generation, mm-hmm. generations of people who grew up with instant access to information open platforms to express their opinion wherever they want, Mm -hmm. the ability to find out information, to vet, to fact find, to, you know, uh, to what's the word I'm looking for to uncover if something someone says is truthful or not, especially a leader. Right. Right. And so this is just given for them. And so, you know, that, that is going to lead to a different way that they approach information gathering, a different way that they approach learning, a different way that they approach interpersonal relationships. Absolutely. And, you know, in the past, when we came into the workforce, information was power, right? Mm -hmm. The people at the tippy top of the triangle had all the information, had all the power. Of course, so that is for me, what I see is what has, you know, what has flattened the hierarchy is Mm -hmm. everybody has, has, well, you know, very similar amounts of information. And so you don't seem all powerful as my, you know, you know, five layers up boss because mm-hmm. I have a lot of the same information. And I also may be much more up to date with it because right. I'm actually checking my phone more. And as I was um in uh I interviewed a, a a young guy, he's actually the son of one of my friends for 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 the for my book, and he said, you know, it's actually very hard. He's probably three, four years into the workforce. And he said, I'm, I find it, I will f- say that I find it sometimes hard to respect my boss who has paid 10 times what I am. Mm-hmm. And he has no clue how to use the software that I'm using in mm-hmm. order to do my job and, and and do the work that I do. So, and then we also look at the, the state of the world, the planet, you know, mm-hmm. all those type of things. And there's, you know, there's a credibility gap. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are lots of things that are also complicating, I think, the relationship. But the other thing about technology, I just wanted to say, is that the big difference for me is exactly what you're saying. I pick up my phone and it's functional. Like if somebody tells me something more about it, I'm like, great, absolutely. And I want to do that thing that's overlaid so I can you know, do this better. And I will learn that and just about it because I don't have any more other time. But if you have, if your your sort of modus operandi is to just play with it and just, and have this intuitive like, ooh, I wonder what the customer's going to do. And you've got time <laughs> to do that. Then you're going to think about technology and the possibilities and, ooh, I can't find this, but maybe there's something out there that can do that. And I just have a much more expansive way of thinking about what technology could do in this or that situation. And that's what I think many leaders now are missing out on in not getting the contributions of their youngest employees who have a have a just a, a feeling for the power of technology that that we just can't have. Well, and I want to bring you back to something you said earlier around the fact that, you know, leadership power used to come from information, mm. who had the information, right? And since it doesn't come from that anymore, that's why mm. leaders are floundering because that was what they were brought up that's what got yep. them successful was how do I hoard the most information? And so I've always talked about empathy is a two-way street, like being empathetic to those leaders that are like, well, yeah. for 30, 40 years, I played this game. And now you're telling me the yep. game is completely different. And so now they're struggling because they didn't shore up those other skills that actually make a great leader. It's not just command and control. It's not just, I have all the information and you don't. I'm always right and you're not. There's other skills that need to come into play that enable people to be great leaders and people to follow them and engage with them and stay mm-hmm. loyal to them. And is is that what you're finding is that they're struggling with those basic skills because they were thinking the skills they had were leadership skills, but they really weren't? Well, they were at the time, mm. right? I mean, that was the world. That was the structure. I don't tend to look backwards because I don't think it's, I don't find it productive when I'm, you know, working with people, but you know, and, and there there are many leaders who have moved on, who or or have moved to seen or seen looked the possibility. at leadership in a different way, yeah, and been more embracing of it. Particularly if they sort of say, "Well, whoa, I don't understand all that's going on. Let me ask people." And that was one of the things I think that um, I, I ask people at any level in my company, and that's why I think the pandemic helped us um, sort of adjust. And find that there were lots of ideas coming from different places in the organization because we were just scrambling. But that scrambling, you know, the leaders got got people through it. And that's why I sort of say, look to the to look to the learnings that you that the that can come from the past two and a half, you know, two and a half years, because you were still leading, you were still, you know, you got your business through it, you rallied. But you weren't, it wasn't being doing, do, you weren't doing it in the same way. You were much more flexible. You were adapting to what was going on. You were like, okay, who has an idea? How can we deploy those skills? What else do we need to do? What can we learn? How can we look at the supply chain differently? So I think that kind of, that sort of expanded mindset, sort of expanded way of leading, you know, really sort of morphing how leadership can be thought of and, and adapted, and adapted for, I think is, is, you know, so I'm trying to sort of push people to to keep going in that direction rather than go back to a much more static, um, you know, way of being. Now, in fact, there is great, there was some really interesting research, which was SAP and I think Oxford Economics from, um, which was actually done in 2016, but it was looking towards it. It was called leaders 
Leaders 2020, something like that. And in 2016, they looked at who the sort of digital winners were, what they described as digital winners as companies. And they were already seeing that companies would really embrace this digital age that was coming or or more digital, had already decentralized a lot of the decision-making because they could see that, you know, waiting for all the decisions to have to roll up to the top, the decision to be made, and then it go back down, was just too slow. So it's... it. It has been coming, and I think there are different businesses have been able to to stay in in a much more hierarchical, static format because of the nature of the business, or you know there are there are different things that that have caused businesses to be able to adapt or or need to adapt earlier. But I do, yes, I have huge empathy for for the leaders who've been doing things in a certain way for a very long time, mm-hmm. and and that was sort of how how you know leaders were, right? Right. right. And I do remember going to um, uh, uh, it was a it was actually from from one of the professors at INSEAD where where I went, but she was she was giving it um her Minia Minia and she gave a talk about the changing uh, the changing characteristics of leadership, saying it was going to be sort of more female. I was, and this was 2014. And I was like, <laughs> rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. Would be great. Um, and it was about, you know, how many leaders there are who are women and there are, you know, women who, leaders who don't want to be women leaders because they have to act like men. And that's what sort of the premise was that, you know, leadership is going to change. And of course, whether it's like women or not, but it is leadership has changed Yes. So much yes. Um, since 2014. Well, you have leaders talking about emotional intelligence, vulnerability, transparency. You know, these were not things they used to talk about before. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you know, you talk a lot about creating a human-centric environment in this new era of work. Can you make that really practical for us? What are some um, simple and practical changes that leaders can make to create a more human-centric environment and improve the culture so that their their teams are more engaged, especially their younger generations. <laughs> yes. So I, I do get a do there's a, a lot of stuff that I do in terms of helping people bridge distances and, and geographic um uh, sort of dispersion of teams and because that is one thing to do with the culture. But it's all also very much about empathy, uh, because if you're trying to to connect with somebody wherever they are, they can be across the table from you um, as well. But it's really it's it's just putting yourself in their shoes. It really is getting practical about listening to someone, really trying to understand what they're saying. And there's some very interesting examples of words. Now I'm I'm a Brit, so I've already had to go through some of that coming to the states. You yes. know, we are separated by a common language, and I've changed some of the ways that I, um, uh, you know, speak in order to be more easily. <laughs> My understood. husband has as well. It's fine, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> no, but there was one thing that so when there's a lot of traffic, your husband may say it too. You'd say it's chock a block, right? It's chock a block full of cars. Now nobody told me for about. 10 years of being here that they didn't understand this. I was like, what? I mean, I mean, you don't use the phrase too many times, but they just thought but, you were being charming. They, yeah, they, it was just like, oh, <laughs> she's just this weird English person now. My husband always says that. Oh, he's foreign. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody told me. I don't mind nobody told me, but it it didn't occur to me that that this they just that your message was getting lost when you were communicating this. Yeah. So I really think about words Mm -hmm. and that really can also be a generational divide in terms of, let's say, hard work. 
sounds very obvious. Hard work to you and me may mean long, hard hours, you know, at the office, burning the midnight oil, coming back exhausted at 11 o'clock. To a much younger person, let's just say a new, you know, labor market entrant, they may be working 40 hours or fewer, but working using amazing technology tools, you know, project management, whatever, whatever it is that they're doing and producing the same results, but working very hard, very effectively. Now, the problem obviously becomes how if I am that person's boss and I'm evaluating them based on one of my criteria is of how hard they worked is how long they were at the office or which how is, long they, I feel they were working. Which is crazy to me. I can't wait till that Kicks oh, it to the I, curb because it's ridiculous. But that's so I think really <laughs> carefully about words. And yeah. so I do, it's not just about listening, but it's also about what words mean mm-hmm. and thinking and, and sort of saying, you know, the, the restating, reconfirming, just to make sure that, that you're understood, having mm-hmm. realized that I'm not <laughs> necessarily being understood. Mm-hmm. And I use words so carefully. And I've had people who are really thoughtful, who are really careful about trying to understand me. And I will find that they have taken out their own interpretation from what I've said about mm-hmm. the future of work, about, you know, Gen Z, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So trying, th- so what I really sort of, you know, lean into and try and one of the key things is really making an effort, more of an effort to to understand the other person, not make judgments, not make assumptions about what you think they mean. Right. Um, and then, and doing the same, you know, back kind of like d- helping them understand, not sort of, you know, did you understand me? But right. really helping them understand, maybe sort of rephrasing it a second time slightly differently mm-hmm. so that there can be more understanding. And of course that can be a little bit more work to begin with, but I think then you know, as right. you know, you sort of, you start connecting, you start kind of, ah, okay, I understand what she's talking about. Yeah. What you're saying is reminding me of that, you know, the technique I always talk about, which is to ask and reflect back mm-hmm. and just yeah. make sure you're on the same page. And and yeah. you may be familiar with Edwin Rutch, who conducts empathy circle training for people all over the world. Ah, his no, culture of empathy. I will put a link to his episode as well. But, um, you know, he's trained all these people in the facilitation of empathy circles. Mm. And when I went through it, I I describe it as a painfully precise workout (laughs) of your active listening muscles because you actually can't add color to what the person's saying. You literally, no matter what they're saying, Mm. he's he's done these at the most divisive political rallies in the US Mm. over the last few years. Oh, great. And it's about listening without judgment. And no matter what you hear, you know, I even do this in some of my trainings. It's like, so what I hear you saying, Sophie, is that the sky is purple and trees have black leaves (laughs) and we are all floating on a trampoline. Is that what I, (laughs) did I get that right? Right. So it's absolutely, absolutely. And then you can like move forward from there. But um, it is that, that ability to reflect back and make sure that you actually are having the same conversation that you both think you're having. And for me, that's at the core of all of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, and the other piece of it is, really trying to put myself in somebody else's shoes, mm-hmm. not as me. And, and those two things go really go, go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. But when I'm really trying to understand your perspective, mm-hmm. okay, so you're married to a Scott. Okay. So what does that mean? What is it? <laughs> like, oh, he's like, that's he's another got, episode. He's got, a, <laughs> he's, got, he's got a kilt and the thing. I love men in kilts. Yeah. Um, so my, my sister married to Scott as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm there, but the, the, 
really trying to understand what is going through the other person's head, whether they're right. a Gen Z, whether they're a Gen X, it really changes how you see the world, obviously. Mm-hmm. And you don't, obviously, you can't get completely there. No. But just one, as you know, the, the act of doing it does so much for the other person. Yeah. And then, you know, when I'm looking at, you know, when talking about conflict resolution or trying to get through a difficult issue, when you have those shared experiences and you can share where you are closer or where you do agree, then you, and you're trying so hard to understand what's inside their head, there is so much more of that or more willingness to, to try and bridge that last bit. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we can try and, and obviously in these, you know, difficult and divisive times, trying to understand somebody else's perspective is, is really not that easy. And, but that- and you don't have to agree with it. This is yes, the thing no, that, I, that we talk about all the time is that you don't have to condone it. You don't have to agree with it. Yep. You just have to hear it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like going back to Edwin and his empathy circles at different political rallies, the goal getting them into the empathy tent was not to convert one yes. to one side or one to the other. The goal was to get them to see each other as human beings mm-hmm. and actually uh, and actually go, I still don't agree with you, but I understand why you feel the way you feel. I, right. can, I can understand the context. And then also maybe a few tiny pieces of overlap, which yes. just help some kind of rapprochement, some kind of more willingness mm-hmm. that is that could be helpful in the future. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, what's one more practical change that leaders can make to improve the culture? Um, so I think it really goes to building relationships, find, you know, creating, finding common ground and creating shared memories, um, shared experiences, because I, I do think that that really is what helps bridge gaps, bridge, bridge differences, bridge differences. And, when and that can be that can be virtual it can be in person there are companies that certainly survive and are very connected without you know ever necessarily getting together in person at all mm-hmm. i think if you can you know getting together in you know at at times during the year in person for retreats whatever and if you're not spending that as much money on on you know office rental that can be that can be used for for part of that but i do think that really leaning into the the human relationships and all the all the ways that we're working now are well a lot of them are new mm-hmm. and we haven't one of the critical changes, I guess, in terms of where where we are and how we're working in this new era of work is that is the how. And the how we need to we need to think it through. You know, we have we sort of come up to this point and we just, you know, we were working in the factories and we had, you know, built the buildings around the factories and we worked and in we there. were told exactly what to do and when to do it and how to do it. Yeah. L- like the machines. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't nobody I think it was it was all focused on the machines because there was so much originally there was so much of a fear of of you know not having in, enough food to produce as the population was exploding and so it was really focused on machines. Now we can't the, the machines are sophisticated and mobile and, and and light and very powerful, and we can work in different ways. Now that we have the tools, we've deliberately created these tools, very sophisticated, powerful tools. How can we best use them? Right. So when we think about all this and sort of think about how. It really, it really changes the dynamics of our work. And when we think about that, how 
we also need to be connecting more as human beings and developing those relationships because that's at the core of how we're going to be the, the sort of the, 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 the top level element, which is supported by the tools and the technology mm-hmm. is how we connect as human beings and we're interrelated and, mm-hmm. and moving from that transactional to the sort of experiential way of working. Well, and as we automate, as mm-hmm. AI automates more tasks and more things that, that, that it can take care of to increase efficiencies, mm-hmm. the competitive edge is the human relationships that the machines can't emulate. Those yes. experiences that, so that's actually, if you are a leader who connects with your team on a very human level and provides empathy and is curious and is actively listening, those are things the machines can't do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not going to get replaced by a machine. <laughs> if, no, you're only fo- it- if you're only focused on the transactional and the yeah. tasks, yeah, you might lose your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's the, the, the part, it's actually generally it's parts of jobs that are being lost right. to machines and it's the most boring parts of exactly. jobs. Exactly. The, the, the low value parts. Yeah. The low value. And so if we're doing more interesting work and, 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 you know, it does require upskilling and that's the sort of nature where we are now, but that is, that can be much more interesting. We can be doing. And, and if you also have a boss who is sort of saying, well, you know, what is it that Maria enjoys doing? Cause she's really going to engage if I can align her with where her skills are and where her strengths are and what she enjoys, which tend to tend to overlap. Mm-hmm. And then if there are some gaps, you know, maybe there's somebody else I can get in who's a freelancer or whatever, I can reassign somebody because, you know, they like doing that instead. Mm-hmm. You know, when we think about the how differently and we think about it from a human-centric perspective, the whole game, the, the, it changes a lot, but I find it very powerful and very exciting. Yeah. It's going to be a much more fun workforce workplace. I think so. So. there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenges and a lot of strain and and pulling in between now and then, but I'm very hopeful. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us, Sophie. Uh, All your links will be in the show notes, but where can folks on the go find out more about you and your work? So sophieway.com and flexcellnetwork.com. And also um, I do do, um, you know, videos. I typically do a sort of short video every week, which is kind of summarizing one particular point that I've found in the news that I think is sort of interesting or noteworthy. And I have a podcast, Transforming Work. And um, so there's a lot of different places you can find. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you. And the book again is called Empathy Works. And so please check that out. The key to competitive advantage in the new era of work. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Maria. Really enjoyed it. And thank you everyone for listening to another great guest on the Empathy Edge podcast. If you like what you heard, please remember to share it with a friend or a colleague. And until next time, always remember that cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. Take care and be kind. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Empathy Edge. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with others who want to redefine success and change the game. For more on how empathy makes you and your brand more successful, visit TheEmpathyEdge.com. There, you can download a free guide outlining five business benefits of empathy and a free sample chapter of Maria's book, The Empathy Edge. Until next time. Remember that a more empathetic world starts with you and leads to tremendous success.